Chapter 19 of Ancient and Modern Celebrated Freethinkers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ancient and Modern Celebrated Freethinkers by Charles Bradlaugh. Chapter 19 Thomas Paine. The wise, by some centuries before the crowd, must, by their novel systems, though correct, of course offend the wicked, weak, and proud, must meet with hatred, calumny, neglect. Thomas Paine, the sturdy champion of political and religious liberty, was born at Thetford in the country of Norfolk, England, 29th of January, 1737. Born of religious parents, his father being a Quaker, and his mother a member of the Church of England, Paine received a religious education at Thetford Grammar School, under the Reverend William Knowles. At an early age he gave indications of his great talent, and found pleasure when a boy in studying poetical authors. His parents, however, endeavored to check his taste for poetry, his father probably thinking it would unfit him for the denomination to which he belonged. But Paine did not lose much time before experimenting in poetry himself. Hence we find him, when eight years of age, composing the following epitaph upon a fly being caught in a spider's web. Here lies the body of John Crow, who once was high, but now is low. Ye brother crows take warning all, for as you rise, so must you fall. At the age of thirteen, after receiving a moderate education in reading, writing, and arithmetic, Paine left school to follow his father's trade, stay-making. Although disliking the business, he pursued this avocation for nearly five years. When about twenty years of age, however, he felt, as most enterprising young men do feel, a desire to visit London and enter into the competition and chances of a metropolitan life. His natural dislike to his father's business led him to abandon for a period his original occupation, and, after working some time with Mr. Morris, a noted staymaker in Longacre, he resolved upon a seafaring adventure, of which he thus speaks. At an early age, raw, adventurous, and heated with the false heroism of a master, Reverend Mr. Knowles, master of the grammar school at Thetford, who had served in a man-of-war, I began my fortune, and entered on board the terrible Captain Death. From this adventure I was happily prevented by the affectionate and moral remonstrances of a good father, who, from the habits of his life, being of the Quaker profession, looked on me as lost. But the impression, much as it affected me at the time, wore away, and I entered afterwards in the King of Prussia privateer, Captain Mender, and went with her to sea. Sea-life did not, as may be supposed, long satisfy a mind like Paine's. In April 1759, after working nearly twelve months at Dover, we find him settled as master staymaker at Sandwich marrying on september twenty seventh mary lambert daughter of an exciseman of that place but this matrimonial happiness was of short duration his wife dying the following year disgusted with the toil and inconvenience of his late occupation Paine now renounced it forever to apply himself to the profession of exciseman 
after fourteen months study he obtained the appointment of supernumerary in the excise which he held with intervals till seventeen sixty eight when he settled as exciseman at levis in sussex and married seventeen seventy one elizabeth olive daughter of a tobacconist whose business he succeeded to about this time Payne wrote several little pieces in prose and verse among which was the celebrated song on the death of general wolfe and the trial of farmer carter's dog porter the latter is a composition of exquisite wit and humor in seventeen seventy two the excise officers throughout the kingdom were dissatisfied with their salaries and formed a plan to apply to parliament for an increase Payne, being distinguished among them as a man of great talent, was solicited to draw up and state their case, which he did in a pamphlet entitled The Case of the Salary of the Officers of Excise, and Thoughts on the Corruption Arising from the Poverty of Excise Officers. Four thousand copies of this pamphlet were printed and circulated. Some time after this publication, Payne, being in the grocery business, was suspected of unfair practices and was dismissed by the excise after being in it twelve years this suspicion however was never shown to be just but to show how very vigorous the authorities were in suppressing smuggling we will quote the following letter from cleo rickman to the editor of the independent whig in october eighteen o seven sir if there are any characters more to be abhorred than others it is those who inflict severe punishments against offenders and yet themselves commit the same crimes if any characters more than others deserve execration exposure and to be driven from among mankind it is those governors of the people who break the laws they themselves make and punish others for breaking suffer me mr editor thus to preface the following fact fact i say because i stand ready to prove it so when admiral duncan rendezvoused in the downs with his fleet on the eighth of january eighteen o six the spider lugger daniel falara master was sent to guernsey to smuggle articles for the fleet such as wine spirits hair powder playing cards tobacco etc for the supply of the different ships at her arrival in the downs the ship's boats flocked round her to unload her and her contraband cargo a custom-house extra boat commanded by william wallace seeing the lugger followed and took her in doing which he did his duty on his inspecting the smuggled articles with which she was laden he found a number of cases directed to admiral duncan the right honourable william pitt the heaven-born minister of england and to the right honourable henry dundas walmer castle in a few days wallace the master of the custom-house cutter received orders from government to give the lugger and her smuggled cargo up on penalty of being dismissed the service and these cases of smuggled goods were afterwards delivered at the prime minister's mr pitt at walmer castle mr editor read what follows and repress your indignation if you can there are now in deal jail fourteen persons for trifling acts of smuggling compared to the above of the right honourable william pitt and the now right honourable lord melville the former were poor and knew not how to live the latter were most affluently and splendidly supported by the people 
that is, they were paupers upon the generous public, towards whom they thus scandalously and infamously conducted themselves. I am, sir, your humble servant, Cleo Rickman. To those opponents of Thomas Paine, who attach any weight to his dismissal from the excise on suspicion of smuggling, we would mention the fact that during Paine's service at Levis, Mr. Jenner, the principal clerk in the excise office, London, wrote several letters from the Board of Excise, thanking Mr. Paine for his assiduity in his profession, and for his information and calculations forwarded to the office. Shortly after his dismissal, Mr. Paine and his wife, by mutual agreement, separated. Many tales have been put in circulation respecting the separation. Cleo Rickman, in his life of Paine, has the following passage. That he did not cohabit with her from the moment they left the altar till the day of their separation, a space of three years, although they lived in the same house together, is an indisputable truth it is also true that no physical defect on the part of mr paine can be adduced as a reason for such conduct mr paine's answer upon my once referring to this subject was it is nobody's business but my own i had cause for it but i will name it to no one this i can assert that mr paine always spoke tenderly and respectfully of his wife and sent her several times pecuniary aid without her knowing even whence it came in seventeen seventy four paine left england and arrived at philadelphia a few months before the battle of lexington he made his appearance in the new world as editor of the pennsylvanian magazine and it would appear that he then had in view the coming struggle in which he took so prominent a part for in his introduction to the first number of the above magazine he states thus encompassed with difficulties this first number of the pennsylvanian magazine entreats a favorable reception of which we shall only say that like the early snowdrop it comes forth in a barren season and contents itself with foretelling the reader that choicer flowers are preparing to appear upon the foreign study of gunpowder being prohibited he proposed a plan in the pennsylvanian journal of a saltpetre association for the voluntary supply of that article of destruction on the tenth of january seventeen seventy six common sense was published its circulation soon reaching a hundred thousand copies. The effect this remarkable pamphlet produced upon the minds of the American people, and the share it had in bringing to a successful issue the then pending struggle, may be gathered even from Paine's bitterest enemies. Mr. Cheatham, in his life of Paine, while endeavoring to damage the author of Common Sense, admits the value of this pamphlet. He says, this pamphlet of forty octavo pages holding out relief by proposing independence to an oppressed and despairing people was published in january seventeen seventy six speaking a language which the colonists had felt but not thought of its popularity terrible in its consequences to the parent country was unexampled in the history of the press at first involving the colonists in the crime of rebellion and pointing to a road leading inevitably to ruin it was read with indignation and alarm 
but when the reader and every one read it recovering from the first shock reperused it its arguments nourishing his feelings and appealing to his pride reanimated his hopes and satisfied his understanding that common sense backed by the resources and force of the colonies poor and feeble as they were could alone rescue them from the unqualified oppression with which they were threatened the unknown author in the moments of enthusiasm which succeeded was an angel sent from heaven to save from all the horrors of slavery by his timely powerful and unerring counsels a faithful but abused a brave but misrepresented people another of paine's enemies and slanderers elkanah watson in a volume recently published entitled men and times of the revolution after speaking in very disparaging terms of Paine's appearance, habits, and disposition, which is proved false by the best of testimony, admits the service rendered to America by common sense. He says, Yet I could not repress the deepest emotions of gratitude toward him, as the instrument of providence in accelerating the declaration of our independence he certainly was a prominent agent in preparing the public sentiment of america for that glorious event the idea of independence had not occupied the popular mind and when guardedly approached on the topic it shrunk from the conception as fraught with doubt with peril and with suffering in seventeen seventy six i was present at providence rhode island in a social assembly of most of the prominent leaders of the state i recollect that the subject of independence was cautiously introduced by an ardent whig and the thought seemed to excite the abhorrence of the whole circle a few weeks after paine's common sense appeared and passed through the continent like an electric spark it everywhere flashed conviction and aroused a determined spirit which resulted in the declaration of independence upon the fourth of july ensuing the name of Paine was precious to every whig heart and had resounded throughout europe other testimony could be given to Paine's influence in the american struggle for independence but after the two already mentioned from his opponents it is unnecessary to give further proof in the same year that common sense appeared paine accompanied general washington and his army being with him in his retreat from the hudson river to the delaware although great terror prevailed paine stood brave and undismayed conscious he was advocating a just cause and determined to bring it to a successful issue he occupied himself in inspiring hope in the americans showing them their strength and their weakness this object drew from his pen the crisis a continuation of the common sense which was issued at intervals till the cessation of hostilities in seventeen seventy seven paine was unanimously and unknown to himself appointed secretary in the foreign department where he formed a close friendship with dr franklin he did not retain his office, however, long, as he refused to become a party to the fraudulent demands of a Mr. Silas Dean, one of the American commissioners then in Europe, and he resigned the office. In 1780 he was chosen member of the American Philosophical Society, having previously received the degree of Master of Arts from the University of Philadelphia. 
when the independence of america was attained and when oppression had received a severe and lasting check in that rising country we find that Paine, so far from being satisfied with his success in the new world began to look for a fresh field where he might render good service to the cause of right and freedom accordingly in seventeen eighty seven he visited paris his famous services to america giving him a welcome by those who knew the benefit arising from the establishment of human rights his stay in paris at this time was of short duration as he returned to england after an absence of thirteen years on september third after visiting his mother and settling an allowance of nine shillings per week for her support he resided for a short time at rotherham in yorkshire where an iron bridge was cast and erected upon a model of his invention which obtained him great reputation for his mathematical skill the publication of mr burke's reflections on the french revolution called from Paine his rights of man a book that created great attraction and sold nearly a million and a half copies in politics Paine was clear and decided and from his moderation what is called sound for the perusal of those who may not have read it we give the following quotations to show the principles upon which it is based mr burke talks about what he calls an hereditary crown as if it were some production of nature or as if like time it had a power to operate not only independently but in spite of man or as if it were a thing or a subject universally consented to alas it has none of those properties but is the reverse of them all it is a thing in imagination the property of which is more than doubted and the legality of which in a few years will be denied but to arrange this matter in a clearer view than what general expressions can convey it will be necessary to state the distinct heads under which what is called an hereditary crown or more properly speaking an hereditary succession to the government of a nation can be considered which are first the right of a particular family to establish itself secondly the right of a nation to establish a particular family with respect to the first of these heads that of a family establishing itself with hereditary powers on its own authority and independent of the consent of a nation all men will concur in calling it despotism and it would be trespassing on their understanding to attempt to prove it but the second head that of a nation establishing a particular family with hereditary powers does not present itself as despotism on the first reflection but if men will permit a second reflection to take place and carry that reflection forward but one remove out of their own persons to that of their offspring they will then see that hereditary succession becomes in its consequences the same despotism to others which they reprobated for themselves it operates to preclude the consent of the succeeding generations and the preclusion of consent is despotism when the person who at any time shall be in possession of a government or those who stand in succession to him shall say to a nation i hold this power in contempt of you it signifies not on what authority he pretends to say it 
it is no relief but an aggravation to a person in slavery to reflect that he was sold by his parent and as that which heightens the criminality of an act cannot be produced to prove the legality of it hereditary succession cannot be established as a legal thing notwithstanding the taxes of england amount to almost seventeen millions a year said to be for the expenses of government it is still evident that the sense of the nation is left to govern itself by magistrates and jurors almost at its own charge on republican principles exclusive of the expense of taxes the salaries of the judges are almost the only charge that is paid out of the revenue considering that all the internal government is executed by the people the taxes of england ought to be the lightest of any nation in europe instead of which they are the contrary as this cannot be accounted for on the score of civil government the subject necessarily extends itself to the monarchical part if a law be bad it is one thing to oppose the practice of it but it is quite a different thing to expose its errors to reason on its defects and show cause why it should be repealed or why another ought to be substituted in its place i have always held it an opinion making it also my practice that it is better to obey a bad law making use at the same time of every argument to show its errors and procure its repeal than forcibly to violate it because the precedent of breaking a bad law might weaken the force and lead to a discretionary violation of those which are good as may be supposed such a work as the rights of man aiming directly at all oppression regardless of party could not be allowed to escape the attorney-general's answer accordingly we find a prosecution instituted against it but instead of prosecuting the author the publishers were selected this drew from Payne a long letter to the attorney-general suggesting the justice of his answering for the book he wrote on the trial mr afterwards lord erskine thus spoke of the author of the rights of man the defendant's whole deportment previous to the publication has been wholly unexceptionable he properly desired to be given up as the author of the book if any inquiry should take place concerning it and he is not affected in evidence directly or indirectly with any legal or suspicious conduct not even with uttering an indiscreet or taunting expression nor with any one matter or thing inconsistent with the best subject in england on the twelfth of september seventeen ninety two mr achilles audibert came expressly to england from the french convention to solicit Payne to attend and aid them by his advice on their deliberations on his arrival at calais a public dinner was provided a royal salute was fired from the battery the troops were drawn out and there was a general rejoicing throughout the town Payne was escorted to the house of his friend mr audibert the chief magistrate of the place where he was visited by the commandant and all the municipal officers in forms who afterwards gave him a sumptuous entertainment in the town hall the same honor was also paid him on his departure for paris upon his arrival in paris all was confusion 
there were the king's friends mortified and subdued the jacobins split up into cavilling faction some wishing a federative government some desiring the king's death and the death of all the nobility while a portion were more discreet wishing liberty without licentiousness and having a desire to redress wrongs without revenge these few accepted Paine as their leader, and renounced all connection with the Jacobin Club. Paine, on all occasions, advocated the preservation of the king's life, but his efforts were thwarted by the appointment, by Robespierre, of Barrère to the office. So anxiously was Paine sought after, that both Calais and Versailles returned him as deputy to show how the author of the rights a man opposed all physical force where reason may be used it is only necessary to state that when the letter of dumouriez reached paris with the threat of restoring the king paine wrote a letter to the convention stating a plan for readjustment and was taking it personally when he was informed that a decree had just been passed offering one hundred thousand crowns for dumouriez's head and another making it high treason to propose anything in his favor whilst deputy for calais paine was sought and admired by all classes he dined every friday for a long period with the earl of lauderdale and dr moore and so frequent were his visitors that he set apart two mornings a week for his levee days he soon however changed his residence preferring less formality and a more select circle his history of the french revolution we are deprived of by his imprisonment which gibbon thought would prove a great loss the historian often applied for the manuscript believing it to be of great worth the opinion Paine held of the revolution may be gathered from the following with respect to the revolution it was begun by good men on good principles and i have ever believed it would have gone on so had not the provocative interference of foreign powers distracted it into madness and sown jealousies among the leaders the people of england have now two revolutions the american and the french before them their own wisdom will direct them what to choose and what to avoid and in everything which relates to their happiness combined with the common good of mankind i wish them honor and success his speech against the death of the king shows how far he was removed from party spirit or any feeling of revenge whilst he protested against the king being re-enthroned he equally protested against his death wishing him removed from the seat of his corruption and placed in a more elevating atmosphere entreating for the king's safety he says let then the united states be the safeguard and the asylum of louis capet there hereafter far removed from the miseries and crimes of royalty he may learn from the constant aspect of public prosperity that the true system of government consists in fair equal and honorable representation in relating this circumstance and in submitting this proposition i consider myself as a citizen of both countries the policy pursued by Paine was not consonant with the views of Robespierre. 
consequently he was seized in the night and imprisoned in the luxembourg eleven months without any reason being assigned the readers are doubtless aware of the many providential escapes he had from the death for which he was seized while in prison he wrote part of his age of reason having commenced it just previous to his arrest not knowing one hour but he might be executed and once being on the verge of death from fever he knew the prejudice the age of reason would create so he left its production to the latter part of his life not wishing to make that an impediment to the good he sought to accomplish in the political world after toiling in france to bring the revolution to a just termination and finding his efforts rendered abortive by that feeling which former oppression had created he resolved to return to america a country he saw thriving by a policy he wished to institute in france in eighteen o two jefferson then president of america knowing his wish to return wrote him the following letter you express a wish in your letter to return to america by a national ship mr dawson who brings over the treaty and who will present you with this letter is charged with orders to the captain of the maryland to receive and accommodate you back if you can be ready to return at such a short warning you will in general find us returned to sentiments worthy of former times in these it will be your glory to have steadily labored and with as much effect as any man living that you may live long to continue your useful labors and reap the reward in the thankfulness of nations is my sincere prayer except the assurance of my high esteem and affectionate attachment thomas jefferson but circumstances prevented Payne going by the maryland he sailed however on the first of september eighteen o two in the london paquette he had often previously arranged to return to america but luckily providence prevented him one ship that he intended to sail by was searched by english frigates for thomas paine and another sunk at sea whilst at other times british frigates were cruising off the ports from which he was to sail knowing him to be there so much religious misrepresentation has been circulated about paine's life and death that it becomes a duty to restate the facts the manner of life paine pursued may be gathered from the reliable testimony of cleo rickman he says mr paine's life in london was a quiet round of philosophical leisure and enjoyment it was occupied in writing in a small epistolary correspondence in walking about with me to visit different friends occasionally lounging at coffee-houses and public places or being visited by a select few lord edward fitzgerald the french and american ambassadors mr sharp the engraver romney the painter mrs wollstonecraft joel barlow mr hull mr christie dr priestley dr towers colonel oswald the walking stuart captain sampson perry mr tuffin mr william choppin captain de stark mr Holmtook, etc were among the number of his friends and acquaintances his manner of living in france and america has already been noticed the perverted tales of carver and cheatham may be utterly disproved by referring to cleo rickman's life of pain as his life so was his death when he became feeble and infirm in january eighteen o nine he was often visited by those good people who so often intrude upon the domestic quiet of the afflicted 
after the visit of an old woman come from the almighty whom paine soon sent back again he was troubled with the reverend milledollar and the reverend mr cunningham the latter reverend said mr paine we visit you as friends and neighbors you have now a full view of death you cannot live long and whoever does not believe in jesus christ will assuredly be damned let me said paine have none of your popish stuff get away with you good morning good morning another visitor was the reverend mr hargrove with this statement my name is hargrove sir i am minister of the new jerusalem church we sir explained the scripture in its true meaning the key has been lost these four thousand years and we have found it then said paine in his own neat way it must have been very rusty shortly before his death he stated to mr hicks to whom he had sent to arrange his burial that his sentiments in reference to the christian religion were precisely the same as when he wrote the age of reason on the eighth of june in the words of cleo rickman eighteen o nine about nine in the morning he placidly and almost without a struggle died as he had lived a deist aged seventy-two years and five months he was interred at new rochelle upon his own farm a handsome monument being now erected where he was buried it has been the object in the present sketch rather to give in a brief manner an account of paine's life and services than an elucidation of his writings his works are well known and they will speak for themselves but much wrong is done to his memory by the perversions and misrepresentations of the religious publications no doubt had his views been different on religious subjects he would have been held up as a model of genius perseverance courage disinterestedness of purpose and purity of life by the men who now find him no better name than the blasphemer we hope that those not previously acquainted with the facts of his life will find in the present sketch sufficient reason to think and speak otherwise of a man who made the world his country and the doing good his religion as euclid near his various writings shown his pen inspired by glorious truth alone o'er all the earth diffusing light and life subduing error ignorance and strife raised man to just pursuits to thinking right and yet will free the world from woe and falsehood's night to this immortal man to pain twas given to metamorphose earth from hell to heaven end of chapter nineteen of ancient and modern celebrated freethinkers recorded for you by ted delorme in fort mill south carolina